Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. It happens to be a very momentous day. It's the Marine Corps birthday, the 245th birthday. And we are going to be talking today about very important events along the way that you may have not heard about. And we're going to be talking with Joseph Tikovsky, who is from Wisconsin, and he will tell you his story about writing his book, 40 Thieves on Saipan, The Elite Marine Scout Snipers in One of World War II's Bloodiest Battles. I think there are many battles, many skirmishes, many inspiring stories that we don't hear about because people either were undercover, uh, they were classified, they didn't want to talk about them when they came home from war, which still happens today, and yet these stories are part of our history and should be known. And this book is about his father, who was in this platoon. And so, Joseph, I want to welcome you to our show. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Well, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about this because certainly the Marine Corps has always been the tip of the spear. They've always done things that really are superhuman. And I, I love hearing about these stories of of risk and danger and courage. And so maybe you could start with the beginning. You know, how did, how did this uh, book start to come about? Tell us about your father's story and, and let's start at the beginning. Certainly. Um, like most men who've been in war, my father never talked about uh, battles at all. It was pretty apparent he was a, a Marine because of all of the correspondence that he would get mm -hmm. from uh, his buddies in the Marine Corps. He was a retired colonel. Um, but as far as Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan, Tinian mm. were concerned, he'd never say a word. Um, so at his funeral in 2011, a man got up and delivered this eulogy that uh, really started this journey of opening a footlocker and finding a trove of information, newspaper clippings, uh, medals of valor, um, and his platoon rosters for Guadalcanal, Tarawa, and this one particular platoon on Saipan stood out because of some handwritten notes on it. Uh, where he listed uh, the wounded, uh, the sick, and those that had been killed in action. Mm. You know, that, that gives me goosebumps, because there's always evidence left behind um, that is intentional sometimes and isn't at other times. And so for him not to talk about it, but to have maintained these keepsakes and mementos, medals, never to have spoken about it, means it truly was a seminal moment in his life. Would you agree? I would, I would concur wholeheartedly because the more I went through and started to organize this information, the more it became apparent that it was 
it was kismet. It was for a reason. It was mm-hmm. intentional that that some someone should be able to tell the story because through um, that platoon roster, I went did an online search and under our family name and Saipan, mm-hmm. and up mm-hmm. popped this Marine Corps website um, that had an article from the 1944 December Leatherneck magazine entitled huh. Tahovsky's Terrors. And the gentleman who posted it was named Chris Tipton. And in it, underneath it, he, he wrote, this was my father's platoon during World War II. And he said that everything in the article is true except that they were never known as terrors, that among the Marines of the 6th Regiment, they were known as the 40 Thieves. Interesting. So so even before I had begun to even think that this was going to be a book, the, the title was just staring me in the face. What did you feel like? It, it felt like Christmas time. It's <laughs> it, almost like, um, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge when he gets giddy um, at the very end at, at the finding all of this. The, the, um, the fellow, um, Chris Tipton, that posted it, I immediately went and looked at the roster and there on it was a Warren H. Tipton. And that was his dad. The H, by the way, stood for Hobart. Mm-hmm. Um he would turn 18 on June 15th, 1944, oh, D-Day wow. on Saipan. Those uh, stories, again, goosebumps again. In terms of what you knew about your father, you found all this out posthumously. Correct. Um, and one of the names on the roster was uh, Knuppel, William F., the platoon sergeant. And there was a fellow, Bill Knuppel, that we would see all the time when my dad wintered in Arizona. Uh, Bill had a home there in Mesa and also one in uh, Montana around Flathead Lake. Mm -hmm. And it was very funny, and it didn't occur to me until after dad died and after doing this research, is that every time that Bill would want to talk about the war at all, all my dad would have to say was, Bill, those days are over. And he would tacitly comply. And it was very, it, it found, I found it intriguing later on that even as 80 and 90 year old men, they still had this relationship of sergeant to lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Because my dad was the lieutenant of, and led the platoon. And, uh, and, it, and it's funny that they would still have that relationship so many decades later. Actually, that doesn't surprise me because even today you hear about battle buddies who are far apart, but they're sometimes the only people they can talk about combat with because they were there. Exactly. But you're telling me that your father never spoke about it. Did he suffer from any lingering PTSD or other behavioral things that you saw? Well, there, it, it explained a lot of oddities. For instance, he would never sleep at night. Mm. Um, and I would never thought of much of it as a kid until later on I sort of asked him because it would happen. He just never slept at night. Mm. And he said, it, it, it's funny how old habits don't die, but 
I was always awake at night, you know, and in, in during the war because the Japanese, that's when the Japanese were most right. active. Wow. And, uh, and then other little things, like he'd never take me to see fireworks as a kid. Very recognizable uh, behaviors. So these were, they were survivors, but no doubt that there were many who were left behind. And that's why that roster that you found is so amazing. But this particular platoon was in elite special ops. So it was dark, wasn't it? Correct. I mean, it, could they, they even talk about it? They did. And because, you know, as opposed to my dad, um, who never talked about the war, mm -hmm. Bill Knuppel was a walking and talking encyclopedia mm. and and shared everything that he had, you know, pictures of graves on Saipan with from the men from the platoon. Mm -hmm. He would share stories like the pig roast, like Arello and Dooley, all of these stories that only if you were there would you know it. Mm -hmm. And when I hunted down the other surviving members of the platoon and started to talk to them, I wasn't like just some jamoke asking what yes. during the war. I had information that only you'd know if you were there. Well, and probably they would never have opened up to you unless you did have a personal connection. And you knew from a knowledge place. Exactly. And be, being the son of the lieutenant, it didn't mm -hmm. hurt at all. When I met Roscoe Mullins for the first time, he's the last surviving member of the platoon. Um, and he lives in West Virginia. When I met him, he said, you look just like your dad. Ah. So you learned a lot about your father in this journey, too, didn't you? I did through the men with whom he served because he never talked about it. And uh, Bill Knuppel was, was great with that. All of them were so willing to open old wounds and share stories of their service. Um, mm -hmm. Rarely did they speak of what things that they did mm -hmm. unless they were, you know, nefarious. Mm -hmm. um, but they would tell what other people did. And, well, and there's a humility often uh, that is quite surprising because they were comrades. Well, not not so much in humility in that regard, but as one of the old gentlemen, Bob Smuts from Georgia, said, mm -hmm. "Killing was nothing to brag about." Right. So none of these guys ever talked about that what they did specifically, but they would talk about other guys in the platoon, and that's how you kind of were able to assemble a story. It was like a big jigsaw puzzle, mm. you know, where all of the pieces had to, you had to put them all together. And some of them fit perfectly. Um, as far as the book is concerned, all of them remembered in dialogue, which made it very convenient because their words are what are, are so riveting about telling the story. And it was initially a... Um, an oral history, but mm -hmm. that wasn't going to work for publishers. So they said, write it as a narrative. And the initially difficult part was turning their 
their words and memories into narrative and, and dialogue, but they did half the job for us with the dialogue already written. That's amazing. I, I mean, this is just finding an uncovered treasure. And we do have to go on a quick break, but we're going to come back and let's talk more about this uh, Special Ops Platoon and why it was nicknamed the 40 Thieves. We'll be right back after this short message. Don't go away. We're talking with Joseph Tukowski. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. hate it when someone starts a sentence by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but... According to Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal, we all do this on occasion. Some people refer to these phrases as tee-ups. That seems fitting. What do you do with a golf ball? You tee it up and then give it a giant wallop. Tee-ups like, to tell you the truth, supposedly soften the blow. But if you are taking the trouble to announce your honesty now, maybe you've been telling too many teradiddles, flummery, and fiblets. Being on the wrong side of a tee-up can be confusing for the listener. What are other words for confusion and frustration? Wouldn't dream and jargoggle. Maybe it would be best to try to remain pricknickety. That means totally above board and precise. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Man cannot live by bread alone. He must have his peanut butter. Peanut butter is a pate of childhood, and it's not just for kids as dogs love it too. Last night I gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter. What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutophobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. I'm Linda Crater, and we're continuing our discussion with Joseph Tukovsky, and we're talking about Marine Corps platoon in Saipan specifically, and, and certainly more than that. But the book that you've written came about because of the discovery of such interesting information. And then when you talked to the people in the platoon, those survivors, you had stories. But I, I guess I'm curious about why was it nicknamed the 40 Thieves? Well, during World War II, Marines in general were notorious thieves. They were the poorest equipped branch of service. Uh, for instance, when they first went into combat on Guadalcanal versus the Imperial Army, they were issued weapons, rations, and uniforms left over from World War I. Mm. 
So they had to go up against the well-equipped Imperial Army with 1903 Springfield rifles, which were bolt action and had a six-bullet clip. <laughs> and, and that's how they conquered Edson's Ridge. And uh, by the time Tarawa came around, they were a little bit better equipped. But to better increase their odds of victory against the Japanese, they found it necessary to, to steal from the army or the navy, just in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, since this platoon, this 40 thieves of Saipan, were uh, a unique group, sort of the elite of the elite, um, they were obviously so prolific at, at it that the rest of the Marines of the 6th Regiment called them the 40 Thieves. I mean, besides, you know, they stole a Jeep from an army captain and uh, then used it to make booze runs to steal from a Navy supply depot. And the rivalry lives on today. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's a funny story be, um, about finding out about the Jeep because... Uh, Bill Knuppel always said that there was uh, a guy, a friend of his, who wrote a book about his experiences as a Marine. And I thought, okay, fine. But it turned out to be Leon Uris. Oh, my goodness. And, and that book was Battle Cry. And it was his fictionalized version of the 6th Marine Regiment. All the names were changed to protect the innocent or, in my in this case, the case <laughs> the guilty. <laughs> Um, and in it, he wrote, he writes of this notorious group of thieves within the 6th Marine Regiment, but he makes them a whole company and, you know, which seems like not probable that, that they could be stealing all of this stuff for 120 some guys, as opposed to 40 guys could probably get away with it. But in it, there is a, a rights of these thieves who roll, stole an army colonel's Jeep. Mm. And and at first I thought it was just fiction, but I thought, well, I'll just ask these guys just just to see. And I'd ask them, steal an army colonel's jeep. And he said, everyone said no. And finally, I got to Bob Smots in Georgia, and and I said, Bob, did you guys ever steal an army colonel's jeep? And he also said no. And I immediately became deflated. But then he continued, it was an army captain's jeep, and we <laughs> beat the hell out of that thing. That's hilarious. Do you suppose that the rigors of the work they were doing, not only did they need the equipment they were taking, but they certainly had some hilarity, uh, lightened the mood uh, in, in such a way, that some of these antics were for that reason? Well, It, it reminds it me a little bit of the MASH shows where they would go and do things like this. Well, in a fellow wrote home, he wrote some wonderful home, letters home to his mother. Um, and uh, one of them said, you know, don't don't be angry because we're always lit up on the Scottish products. You know, uh -huh. we're living on borrowed time mm -hmm. and and we'll we'll do what we want, basically, is what mm -hmm. he told his mother. And that uh, and she keeps on thinking that he's some little Sunday school boy. And he said, you're, you know, a, a rifle does me more good out here than a Bible. So quit your mm. praying. Well, they had to be tough, as you know. And so the, the things they were taking on on a daily basis takes a certain type of courage 
to persist, especially as you lose people in battle. So in terms of being a Marine, I mean, Marines are one proud group, uh, rightfully so. And what do you think it meant to them in this platoon to be a Marine? Well, there was a lot of swagger that went with being a Marine. There's, uh, there still is. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is part of the culture. Well, they're, they're the few and the proud. Exactly. Um, one of the fellows in the platoon, Lonnie Jackson from Centralia, Washington, was the shortest guy in the outfit. And when he went to enlist the first time, he was only five foot three inches tall. And that wasn't tall enough to be a Marine. You had to be five foot four inches tall. Mm. So he spent a week stretching himself. He tied, mind you, this is 1940s, he tied cinder blocks to his feet and hung from a tree for a week. Oh, my gosh. That works? And the second time... Temporarily it works. Yes. And, and, and he also noticed that when they measured him, they, the guys had to take off their shoes but not their socks. So he put in a little layer of cardboard in his socks, too. <laughs> and the second time he, he went in, he was exactly five foot four inches tall. And he became a Marine. That's how badly he wanted right. to be a Marine. Oh, that's a good story. That's a very good story. In general, this group who gravitated to be the best of the best, what were some of the characteristics that stood out for you as you did this research and, and learned more from these men directly? One of the prerequisites for being in the platoon uh, that I learned from Bill Knuppel was when they first sent out the notice that they were going to be forming this scout sniper platoon. It's only the second platoon of this type to be deployed in the Pacific during World War II. The other one was for Tarawa. Mm -hmm. um, but on Tarawa was just a three-day bloodbath, whereas Saipan was about a month-long grinder of a battle. So they would be using those sort of covert skills more than they did on Tarawa. But uh, when he and Bill were going through the record books and Bill wanted to interview the guys, Dad said, not yet. We've got we've to look in the record books. And Bill said, why? He said, we're looking for, we're looking for guys with brig time. And that mm. surprised Knuppel a little bit. And then Dad clarified, I want to see if they've been in fights, you know, if they've been thrown in the brig for brawls, because the loser goes to the infirmary, the winner goes to the brig. The guy in the brig is the kind of guy I want. Wow. It shows that he can handle him. He's been in a tough spot, and he knows how to take care of himself. That's, so that's a good way to pull people in. I mean, it's a yeah. good way to recruit. So uh, that would be my next question I would ask all of the guys, what they got thrown in the brig for. <laughs> <laughs> and did they all have a story? They did, They did, but they all still uh, denied it. <laughs> wow. It, 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 is, it is interesting about that. Now, I, when we spoke before, you were talking about that they were very much undercover. And so if they were short of equipment, et cetera, and they were special ops, but they didn't have all the equipment, I guess they had to make do with what they could find. Is that correct? Uh, correct. They all carried strangulation gear. 
Um, one of the fellows, uh, Bill Emmerich, who was a club fighter out of Chicago, um, referred to it as a mafia necktie. Oh, dear. Okay. Uh, I presume it's a garrot? Correct. Okay. And, it, and for them, it was just piano wire on two pieces of wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be that they made it themselves. Uh, who knows? Um, that wasn't uncommon for even families to send um, handguns and and ammunition to guys overseas back in those days. Wow. Um, they um, also learned the Biddle method of bayonet fighting, and since they'd be working behind enemy lines where firing a weapon would be your last resort, mm-hmm. they learned what they termed as black death techniques. And... Um, Bill Knuppel told me that they learned how to kill people in ways that you can't even fathom. So we're talking hand-to-hand? Correct. It's quieter. (laughs) It is, certainly is. Um, And then they'd scavenge, too. I think growing up in the Depression, you learned how to improvise and make do so much better than people could today. Mm -hmm. There was a very difficult uh, Japanese emplacement they couldn't get at. Um, But they had found an area that was an old Japanese camp with buckets of rusted nails and scrap metal. And they gathered that, got some rope, They all carried uh, TNT and primer cord, and they uh, put the TNT primer in the bucket of rusty nails, tied a rope to it, Mm. lit it, and then swung it into the area that needed to be cleaned out that was inaccessible. Mm -hmm. It's it's just almost... And and they fended off a um, tank bonsai with Molotov cocktails because they weren't issued bazookas. Good grief. So they not only improvised, they had enormous collaborative effects as a team. Well, that they was... went after anything they needed to. Correct. And uh, it was a thing where dad rotated um, tent assignments. So everybody got to know everybody because normally you just stick with your own squad. Mm-hmm. And uh, that built a camaraderie among all of the platoon, where everybody knew everyone, which is uncommon for 40 guys to know each other that mm-hmm. intimately. So your father told you that? No, Bill Knuppel tells me all oh, of this. Bill Knuppel, okay. Because I, I th- you said, and Dad said, so I, I was thinking, oh, so he did talk about well, it a little bit. Well, so, that's Knuppel telling me. That we got it, got it. Yeah. Um, We have to go on another break, and we will be back shortly, and we will continue to talk about how Marines improvise, adapt, and overcome. We will be back shortly, right after this message. Stay tuned. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? 
Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. is National Ice Cream Month, as if we needed a reason to celebrate ice cream. Would you believe the average American eats 45.8 pints of ice cream a year? Here's the scoop on some ice cream lingo. In Pennsylvania, the paper cone used to hold ice cream is called a toot. Sprinkles or jimmies on top of ice cream are called ants in California and outsiders and logs in Vermont. The world record for ice cream eating is 1.75 gallons in 8 minutes. Oh, I feel a brain freeze coming on. What's another word for brain freeze? Sphenopalatine ganglia neuralgia. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We are talking with Joseph Tukowski about his book, uh, 40 Thieves on Saipan. We've been talking about how every one of these Marines had to make do, find things, steal things, make it happen, and make it work to do and accomplish their mission. So as you were compiling this story, it sounds as though there was enormous footwork to do to uncover these stories, all of which you really didn't know because your father did not talk about it. So can you talk about how you assembled the the book itself and, and how you put it together and some of the things you discovered along the way about your dad? Certainly. Um, after talking to Bill Knuppel and getting the wealth of information that he had, uh, I went back and I went through the platoon roster and searched to see who might still be alive. Mm -hmm. And I found uh, four other gentlemen who were still alive from the platoon. And of course, they didn't live in a place where you could fly to. Everywhere was pretty obscure, like mm -hmm. Flathead Lake, Montana, or Dahlonega, Jordan, uh, Georgia, or... Culloden, West Virginia, and so it would be driving trips. And one of the things that my brother did um, before my parents passed away is always sit them down in front of uh, photo albums and have them narrate the photo albums. And I would listen to those on the trip. Mm -hmm. And... You wouldn't get much out of dad, but mom would see a picture of somebody like Pappy Moorhead and say say something, oh, Pappy, he was such a dear guy. You know, I never could understand a word that he said. <laughs> and he was just, you know, always asking me if I had a sister because he wasn't married and, and dad was. Mm -hmm. And and I get, you know, wonderful little stories and vignettes that would be 
you know, in these tapes is I'd be driving to see Roscoe Mullins in West Virginia or Marvin Strombo in Montana or Bob Smots in Georgia or Bill Knuppel in Arizona. And every time I'd meet the guys, I would share with what the stories that the other fellows told, and then that would spark a little bit more memory with them. Mm-hmm. And so then I, so that would spawn a whole nother circle tour of the United States. I must have driven around the United States four times a year for eight years, probably. Oh my! Going from well, I'd want to be there on their birthdays, and oh, okay. they sort of became my boys by proxy. You know, they mm-hmm. were my dad's boys, mm-hmm. and uh, they became, you know, special to me. And I'd be there for their birthdays around Veterans Day. I'd be there around D-Day on Saipan, and then I'd pick a few other days in a year where I could go and visit them. And I had amassed all of these stories and information with no particular dates that are involved. Um, It certainly was easy enough to go to the um, National Archives in Maryland, and I was lucky enough to find Colonel Risley's journal. Colonel Risley commanded the 6th Marine Regiment, Mm -hmm. and this platoon was sort of his brute squad. It was very unique in that this platoon worked for him and for the 6th Marine Regiment. It wasn't mm-hmm. part of any other company or battalion. And um, it, it, that helped uh, and was very beneficial in placing actions because they were mentioned throughout his, his daily journal. Uh, then I happened to find a box of letters in the garage of my dad to my mother that he had written. And even though you can't write about battle, which he didn't have time to do when he was in combat, but for during the training in Hawaii, he would mention things like, I had a barbecue for my boys today. Mm. And so that became the date of when they had the pig roast, when they Mm -hmm. stole the pig from the Hawaiian farmer so they could have a barbecue on the beach. Mm. and watch the sunset. Uh, and there would be other things like like when he was became the leader of this, was chosen to be the leader of the 40 Thieves, he writes home, I got a new job today. Mm. And, and so that was very helpful. And then you take all of these recordings of the oral histories and then transpose them all into sort of documents. Mm-hmm. And that was very, you know, time consuming because I'm not a good typist. I'm very curious, were any of these men married? You mentioned your mother, so obviously your dad uh, was married and and you're here. Mm -hmm. Were any of these family members, did they ever know anything or had they all been very closed-mouthed about their experiences? They were all, no no one talked about the war at all. Okay. Uh, no one. In fact, uh, there was a fellow in the platoon, John Zuziak, um, and I met his son Richard not that long ago. And Richard asked me if I'd like his dad's war pictures, mm-hmm. and I thought they would be just Marine Corps issued pictures because it's illegal to carry a camera yes. because it makes you look like a spy. But 
not only did Bill Knuppel have a camera, John Zuziak had a camera. And there's this one episode that Bob Smots talks about. While they were training on Hawaii, they went into this off-limits village of Polalu uh, that the FBI declared off-limits to all military personnel because it was completely filled with Japanese sympathizers. Mm. So much so that all of the men had been sent away to internment camps mm -hmm. and the population was entirely women and children. Mm. And Smots and his platoon, who was supposed to be out training and living off the land, decide they're going to go into this Polaloo. And they do. And the woman who owned the general store there was the head spy. And <laughs> she immediately rounded up a bunch of young girls, mm -hmm. you know, to fraternize with the boys, girlfriend types. Mm -hmm. And they're living it up. And this is all Bob Smart's story. And, you know, old men can not remember things well or maybe. It talk sounds like all of these men remembered everything vividly. Well, what they can remember, they remember really well. Okay. Um, and uh, almost by rote. In fact, Bob Smart said, you can see it as though in your mind's eye as though it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, there's this episode where Bob Smart talks about going into this village. They end up getting busted by the Hawaiian Home Guard and invites them to their house for lunch. <laughs> right? So I get these photos from Richard Zuziak, his dad, John, evidently was on that mission into Polalu because he took photographs. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they have the, the pictures of themselves taken with the girls. Uh -huh. And they're the prettiest little things that you've ever seen in your life. The, and you know it has to be Polalu. They're all only women and children. Right. That's all that are in the photographs besides these Marines. And... Uh, they give them, uh, each girl gave them an autographed picture when they left. Um, the more old woman who ran the general store took such good care of them. Do you know what they called her? No. Mom. Aww. They're just 18 year olds. They're just kids. They're yeah. just kids. Right. And they're having the time of their life. And they even took a picture of them around the, the kitchen table of the head of the Hawaiian Home Guard. So all of this, it, it just kind of made me tingle when I, when I saw this, you know, not to be like an expose, but photographic evidence that mm -hmm. Bob Smart's story was true. So did your mother ever talk about things? Well, she would, but if she ever did it around dad, dad would get really upset, okay. uncharacteristically upset. Mm -hmm. Um to the point where he'd either leave the room or there'd be this very odd silence until he gained his composure okay. and changed the subject. Did you find that with the other men as well? The other men, well, never talked about it at all. And probably no one was as gregarious as no other mother was as gregarious as my mother was. Ah, okay. Um, and uh, she would be very proud of dad and brag him up a lot. And dad wasn't a braggart. Um, in fact, when he got his silver star that he thought he never deserved because he said he didn't do anything that any other Marine wouldn't have done, mm. um, she starts showing it around town. 
And of course, she's writing it to him in letters that she's doing it, and and her dad's doing it. And um, dad says in a letter back, "Please stop. I'm not running for mayor there." <laughs> and eventually, dad that was actually a gentle, yeah, rejoinder instead yeah. of "What the hell are you doing?" Well, you know, mail took two 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 months sometimes to right. to get from one to another. So it was very funny reading these arguments they'd have back and forth where you didn't know what they're arguing about because it was a topic that was, you know. Six months month earlier. Before. Right. Right. Correct. That it, That's fascinating. So in terms of them talking with you, because you had stories from others, it was almost as though you had a key. And if you told one a story, it reminded them, and then they could tell you another story. So you really put this together like a jigsaw puzzle. Well, as I said before, many stories were complete, but a lot of them were like a jigsaw puzzle, like their push into the valley where one squad got wiped out in an, in an ambush. Um, every one of the men remembers a different key part of it. And that's how, But but I never knew it was they all belonged in the same episode, you know, because they talk about just this instance and then another instance. And then I figured out, oh, this is what happened and goes in this sequential order. So it was, uh, it took quite a, quite a bit of time and also a lot of pruning too, because some stories just didn't belong and um, some just didn't, didn't make sense for, for Saipan. Right. Right. But when you put it all together, it sounds like you found these remarkable men and learned a lot about your father. It sounds like the relationship with your mother was amazing. You know, as you know, a military spouse does not always have an easy time of things. And especially, as you said, when they're apart that far with no way to connect, um, it, it sounds as though that was a, a very strong and enduring marriage and and the fact that you are taking this on with such generosity of spirit and and curiosity is also a testament to your father we have to go on a final break and then we will come back and talk about some of the lingering effects of war we're military network radio and we'll be right back after these short messages Would you like to know how to bring more ease to all the decisions you need to make in life? Knowing your core values is the first step in Joyce's free live masterclass. You'll discover your top five core values in as little as 45 minutes. Join her now at freegiftfromjoyce.com. don't cry, right? According to a recent Wall Street Journal article by Dennis Nishi, there's a stigma attached to turning on the waterworks at the office. 61% of men who reported crying at work cited personal reasons, an illness in the family, the death of a pet is the catalyst, while 58% of women said it was something that happened at work. Being unfairly blamed or criticized, men are like mascara. They run at the first sign of hubba-boo. That's another word for crying. 
What's the word for the fear of intense emotion? Zelophobia. Women may have a better excuse for crying than men, as females have higher levels of prolactin, which encourages the production of tears, making it easier to be known as a lacrimist or someone who cries at the drop of a hat. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. One of the things we were talking about on break is that in those days, they were not connected on a daily basis. There was not email. There was not Wi-Fi. There was not even phones were probably in use in terms of satellite phones and that kind of thing. And I'm just curious. Um, I've heard other uh, Marines and other service members talk about the fact that sometimes being connected is a big downside. And others say, no, it's, it's better to be connected um, in, in this case, there was no choice. Uh, these days, it's interesting. Is it a plus or a minus in your mind as you watched and talked with all these men? I think it was more of a plus. I think um, so, too, because I think it allowed them to focus on their mission. Well, in, in, in the, the dichotomy, I don't know, even know if that's the right word, but the difference between the lives they had to live mm-hmm. and the way they had to live was so polar opposite of everything that was going on back home. Mm-hmm. And you kind of didn't want to be reminded of it. And well, and that's it, what they say today, is that I, I can't handle that the... Um, you know, the roof has a leak um, and I feel frustrated or that, you know, we we have a, a hurricane coming and I can't be there to help. So there's a helplessness when you cannot help someone. Um, and my uncle was in Vietnam and they occasionally had ham radio talks a minute at a time, you know, over and and then talked. And so there's pluses and minuses to being able to talk and be in touch um, and even the times coming back, the decompression, because now, as many will tell you, um, including our producer, you can literally be in country one day, and 24 hours later you're in the, back in the States with, with no decompression time. Eleanor Roosevelt suggested that, uh, well, they, she had an interesting relationship with the Marines. Um, she said of them, The Marines I have met around the world have the cleanest bodies, the filthiest minds, the highest morale, and the lowest morals of any group of animals I've ever seen. (laughs) Thank God for the United States Marines. Oh, that's great. She was one of uh, mine. She said that because in on New Zealand, where they were stationed between Guadalcanal and Tarawa, um, the Marines there were told that they were going to be getting a visiting VIP. And for all of these 18-year-old boys, they thought it was going to be the sex goddess Rita Hayworth. Mm. So Scuttlebutt was going all around that Rita Hayworth's coming. So when this plane lands with the VIP on it, and they all gather around the airplane to see Rita Hayworth walking down the steps, and it's Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) And 
they booed her and catcalled and raspberries and Marvin Stram Strombo from Montana said we gave her a really hard time, which uh, prompted I bet she could take it though. Yeah, but that prompted her quote about being, right. uh, you know, animals. And uh, and she went on further to say that the Marines were such wild, acted like such wild barbarians that they should be quarantined for a year before they're allowed back in the United States. Interesting. And when I told Marvin Strombo that's what she said, he thought for a second and, and said she's probably right. Well, it, it actually might have helped them. Yeah. Um, Bob Smots was put in quarantine on Mare Island for a month when he was going home for Christmas. In fact, he missed being at home for Christmas because they put him in quarantine. Um, and I asked him what that was like. And he said, basically, they told you that if you killed any poor old civilian now, you'd end up in front of a firing squad. So don't. Do you think it was done for health reasons, for PTSD, for decompressing, for processing what they'd gone through? I'm sure that was that was a big part of it. But uh, as as you well know, a, a month is barely scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Did these men talk about their struggles with invisible wounds or, or behavioral problems or physical problems after war? They all... I don't know what got me going on this first, but I asked someone about nightmares. Mm -hmm. And and it was it was really hard talking to these old guys because you didn't want to open up the wounds that would cause these nightmares again. Right. Uh, Bob Smots in Georgia, his wife Alma took me aside. They'd been sweethearts since, God, I don't know, junior high. They met at an Alice Chalmers tractor show when they were 14. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she took me aside and said, this is so great that Bob has someone to talk to. And then she told me as a newlywed, she would wake up at night and find Bob choking her. Right. Because he was having his nightmare where he's... Night terrors. Chasing the... Jap no, he sees his, his best buddy, Daniel Kenny, get his mm -hmm. brains blown out by a Japanese and he starts to chase the Japanese through the elephant grass. And this is his nightmare. He sees mm -hmm. this every night. And the last thing I wanted to do is trigger something where these have these nightmares because they can subside for a bit. Mm -hmm. But Marvin Strombo said, oh, don't worry about that. Sometimes it's just a sound or even a smell. A scent. A scent can set it off very yep. easily. That starts uh, these nightmares. And, and luckily, you know, not luckily, but somehow... I was able to incorporate their nightmares into the book. Mm -hmm. um, so you get to read about Roscoe Mullins' officer's tomb on Tarawa. You get to read about the Marvin Strombo's first bonsai that he dreams of. Um, you could, I couldn't write about Bob Smot's recurring nightmare because it was something that happened on Saipan, but all of them have nightmares. Uh, Sandy Strombo, Marvin's daughter, as a little girl, once went in to wake her daddy up uh -huh. while he was sleeping to get a drink of water or something, or maybe somebody was sick. And the next thing she knew, 
like she was unconscious in the hallway mm -hmm. and he was just over her so apologetic and uh, ashamed and afraid of what he did to his little girl. And then he, he told her, you, you, you never wake a sleeping Marine. Do you know if any of them were ever treated for these conditions? I don't know if they had treatment back in those days. It, you know, a lot of the men from the platoon suffered many broken marriages. Right. Um, the Alcoholism. Wild Bill, the, the Wild Bill Emmerich that I mentioned earlier with the mm -hmm. mafia necktie. Mm -hmm. He had a wife and child when he left for war. And when he came back, they just left him in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. The wife left with the child, changed their names, never to be heard from again. Yeah, these uh, are the these are the, uh, the the remnants after war that people don't talk about that often. In terms of what impact this book had on you, you found out about your father. You found amazing stories about courageous men. You learned about their camaraderie that extends to this day. And what did you learn about yourself? Whoa how lucky I am mm. to that, that my father saved these things, that I could meet these incredible men from his platoon that are just so noble and humble and um, very, very difficult to wrap it around that at one time they were warriors in the Pacific mm -hmm. to see them now as little frail old men. So in, in, in my mind's eye, you know, I, I see them as these 18, 19-year-old roughnecks. Mm -hmm. And somehow this, it's almost like a little big man scenario. <laughs> it's this <laughs> old, old, old fellow is telling you these phenomenal stories of his life. But what, and one of the best things that happened to it is because of the research from the book, um, Marvin Strombo, uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago in 2017, there was a Marine who returned a, a good luck flag to a family in Japan. I do remember that. Yep, that was Marvin Strombo from the platoon. He acquired that flag oh. on Saipan, and it was uh, research from the book that made it possible to locate the family and for him to return that flag. Um, it was a promise that he made to a corpse, a dead Japanese captain. For some reason, Strombo felt akin to him and uh, was going to leave the flag, but he knew that anyone, any other Marine was going to take it and sell it for 50 bucks. Mm. But uh, he decided to keep it and told him that, uh, made the promise that he'd try to get it home to his family someday. And in 2017, he finally did. As I recall, it was graciously accepted as well by the youngest brother. Yes. And when when he took the flag, uh, because it's it's not just a flag. It's it's mm -mm. the Japanese believe that the soul is of of the soldiers embodied in that flag. And when when uh, the younger brother received the flag, he immediately took it to his face and inhaled deeply Aww. and said, You've taken good care of my brother. That's amazing. I want to make sure our listeners know where to find out more information. And there's a website, and it's 40, the number 40, thieves, 
Saipan, S-A-I-P-A-N.com. And Joseph, thank you for sharing these stories. Is there anything that we've left out that you would like to share? We have about a minute and a half. Well, one of the things that my father would always lament about is that we don't do enough for our veterans. So when uh, I determined to write the book, and if we were fortunate enough to get it published, that a significant portion of the royalties are going to be donated to organizations that help our veterans. Good. Because I feel I'd be a, a sad, uh, sad excuse of a son if I, if I didn't. Well, I think that's extremely honorable. I, I find that stories from the past allow us to better understand today. That's why I think history is so important. And also when you paint the pictures that you have painted during this hour, it lets us have a glimpse into a time, a, a sad time, a war time. We are finally coming out of wars and we are so blessed for that. So thank you, Joseph, for your time today. Your book, again, can be found at 40thievessaipan.com. And we hope that you'll get it. I will put the link to the book in the show notes. And I am grateful for your time today, your memories, and, and all the things that your father and your mother left you. Well, thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening today. Again, you go to 40thievessaipan.com. We're Military Network Radio, and thank you for listening. Make it a great week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash military network radio also www.militarynetworkradio.com and in itunes under military network radio join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 